This episode of The Taylor Stevens Show is brought to you by listeners, readers, and patrons. If you'd like to learn how to support this podcast, please visit www.patreon.com slash taylorstevens. This is Taylor Stevens, New York Times bestselling and award-winning author of kick-ass international thrillers, and this is The Taylor Stevens Show with my good friend Steve Campbell, where we are kicking writing in the butt one word at a time. And Taylor, right before we started recording, told me what our chit-chat topic was going to be, and it's very alliterative. The Squirrel World. I can't even say it. Squirrel War. Squirrel War. (laughs) (laughs) I have been at war with the squirrels for a long time, and I, you know, I told my tragic story of killing the bunny and all of that, and um, I, I finally hunted down and got the worst culprit, and I feel such intense guilt over it. I haven't even processed the guilt, but it was like I tried to make peace, and the squirrel was not listening. But anyway, um, it for the longest time after that no peaches came off the tree. Like I, they started ripening and I actually got enough peaches that like, I don't know, eight pounds of them or something. By the time I got them all cut down, whatever, it was enough to make this massive smoked peach cobbler and like a 12 inch cast iron skillet. Which you made a peach cobbler? I, I did not personally have the <laughs> skill to make it, <laughs> but I was like, I'll peel the peaches and get all the fruit (laughs) and you make me the cobbler and then you can have half of it. How's that work for us? (laughs) That would have worked for me. Yeah. So it was pretty good. It was the first time I'd ever had a smoked peach cobbler and it was, it was really interesting. Um, It had less sugar in it than it was called for. So it didn't, it didn't feel oversweet and I was like, well, if only next year I could get more peaches, <laughs> we can do this more than once. But then, so that was the first tree that the peaches had ripened. Well, it's technically the second tree. The first tree, I, I had, it had gotten sick and I had been working on getting it healed and it only had three peaches left. And I was like, so carefully, like going out and checking them every day. One morning I went out there and there was this something in the tree and it, it looked, I couldn't tell. Is that like a bird's nest or whatever? It was a freaking squirrel in my tree, eating a peach <laughs> right in front of me. Throwing it at you. He, and he <laughs> threw it at me when he ran away, right? And I did not have anything to get. I was so mad. I threw it back at it. I can take the freaking peach. Um, so tree one wiped out. Tree two Halfway wiped out. That's where I got all the peaches from. And I was like, okay, tree three. And I've been taking care of it. And all of a sudden, there'd be whole branches with peaches gone, but no evidence on the ground. And within like just four or five days, all the peaches disappeared. <laughs> all of them. So I know it wasn't the one squirrel. So clearly somebody else has now found my stash. So the war is not yet won. Oh my but gosh. <laughs> <laughs> and then on top of it, I my the peaches the, the peaches have like a fungal infection. Like I didn't know there's so many 
things you have to do to just get a piece of fruit. So now I had to research all this and I got to go take care of my sick trees and try and keep them from dying. And so who even knows what next year is going to be? I'm just like so over it. But anyway, that's my squirrel story. I, you know, I feel pretty good about the fact that we live really close to a grocery store and there's no trees involved. We just go get the peaches. The <laughs> problem <laughs> when you get all your food from a grocery store is you lose touch with value of life. And, and I, I don't mean this to criticize anybody, not you, not anybody who's listening, but I know for myself, when I actually started getting more involved in where my food was coming from, I couldn't go to a grocery store and just see meat, for example. I became aware of the life behind the food. And I'm not a vegetarian, I'm not vegan, but I have a lot more respect for the food that I eat in a way that I never did when it just came in pretty little packages. And I, to me, I think that's the biggest danger of grocery store shopping is we lose, um, it's easy, I'm not saying everybody does, but it's easy to lose that sense of connection to where it comes from and, and how it gets to you. I've taken my approach from, th this was, let's see, probably close to 20 years ago. We were, Julie and I were up north with our twin boys who were probably six or seven at the time. We're driving along and we passed some cows and the boys said something about the cows and Julie says, oh, that's where hamburger comes from. And they, they were indignant and informed us that no, hamburgers came from the store, and these cows were completely unrelated to hamburgers. So I've I've chosen to just take their <laughs> sense of all of this and and run with it. And run with it. Yes. Okay. <laughs> well. Well, with that being said, <laughs> there's probably some sort of a transition here that I completely missed. But yeah, I'm drawing blanks. <laughs> yeah, so we, we've we've got some feedback on our show about translation. So we're going to kick things off with uh, a little bit of that. Yeah, I was actually kind of surprised. Like we're we're constantly putting out, you know, hey, if you've got something to say on this, let us know. And of all the shows that brought in like multiple rounds of listener feedback. It was the show that we just recently did on translations. So um, there are a couple comments that showed up in the Facebook group, and I just wanted to read them here because I thought they had a lot of value to add to the conversation. Um, it started, and, and I've edited some of these down a little bit just for clarity, just so to, to keep us a little bit focused. So I apologize if it sounds like I'm putting words in anybody's mouth. It's not what I was doing. But Carl wrote about, and forgive my pronouns, I do not know how to pronounce anything, so just laugh at me if you must, but <laughs> Hofstadter's book, Le Tombeau de Maro, it's in English, even well, though the title is French, <laughs> which gives you an idea right away, goes into much, much detail on translation issues, translating cultures, making analogies, how our brains work, etc. Hofstadter translated a short French novel, That Mad Ache by 
Francois Sagan and wrote an essay almost as long as the novel about doing the translation. Perhaps his most unusual difficult decision was to translate the formal French, French word for you, which is vous, I guess, as you with a capital Y, which is quite a departure from normal English. And he goes into some detail on the rationale for his doing so. And I thought that was really interesting. And then Carl also posted an article by science author Deva Sobel, which, in which she details her working relationship with a translator. And I guess it's, it's like a blog post. And I, I read the whole thing, and it is really quite amazing. This, I think it was like a years-long relationship and back and forth with this Chinese translator who wasn't even really getting paid very much to do this job, but he cared so much about translation and so much about this work specifically that he threw himself into it with this enormous passion. And the blog post just kind of, it details this relationship that they had back and forth and includes questions that the translator was asking, trying to find accurate equivalents or understand the the turns of phrase that he wasn't super familiar with. So um, we're going to have that link posted in the show notes if you're interested in reading it. And then in response to that, Anna wrote, Le Tombio de Marot is a great book. I read it in more than one language. Sometimes the same book in parallel to, oh, she says, I read in more than one language. Sometimes the same book in parallel to compare translations and see the good, the bad, and the ugly. It is a fascinating subject, human communication at all levels. I try to read books in their original language. And I cut a little bit out, but she's talking about she's never read any of my books in more than one language because they were originally written in English. And she said, this started long ago when I was growing up in Poland and read Proust's Remembrance of Things Past. The first six volumes were beautifully translated into Polish by someone who himself was a great writer. The last tome was not so good. So I decided I must learn French enough to read it one day. Growing up in Poland under communist regime meant having to learn Russian many years at school. And I'm grateful for that today because there are so many good Russian authors just not being translated and Russian ebooks are dirt cheap comparing. Then I migrated to Australia and added English to the list. My brother migrated to Germany. So last year I started teaching myself German. I'm about to read my first book in German. On the podcast, you mentioned gendered languages. All of those that I know, Polish, Russian, French, and German, are gendered. I don't think it affects translations that much, but historical and cultural differences do, even in the same language. I've heard that Harry Potter books were slightly edited for American audiences. For example, Americans have supper while English call it tea, which is different from afternoon tea. And I actually have something to say on that, and I'll tag it on at the end of this. Another thing that caught my attention in the podcast is the importance of who the translator is. That, I think, depends on the title. I remember having a heavy discussion with my book club over which translation of War and Peace to read. There were many, as it happens with such great classic titles, so we were looking into translators' bios, what else they worked on, where they studied, the language, etc. I also had a go at translating some public domain stories with the intention of posting them somewhere, such as the Internet Archive, English to Polish, 
believe me, it's bloody hard, hard work. If translators are asking you many questions, that's great. That's a good sign. That means they are serious and they care. In regards to translations into English, there's an interesting tidbit about one of my favorite books, Master and Margarita by Bulgakov. In the opening scene, two men take a walk in a park. There are linden, which is from Latin, the tilia trees there, a popular tree in Europe, beautiful scented flowers in July. In one of the translations, this tree is named linden, and in another, lime. Both names are correct. I dug deeper and found out that the word linden is German in origin, and the translation that used the word lime was British. As it happened, the British translation had been made soon after World War II, and at that time, anything associated with Germany was to be avoided. This is an example of how history sometimes affects the choice of words. And I just thought that was all of it from beginning to end. So fascinating that I wanted to read it on air as like a follow-up to the discussion about translations. And that I is fantastic. Have... And I, I am so thrilled that we have listeners like that that care enough to, to comment at that level. That's really something. Yeah, there was more, but I, I, you know, I couldn't include it all here. So if you added more and didn't get read, or if you had a comment that wasn't included, please know that I just, I love it all. I just, you know, we're limited on how much I can include here. On the subject of translations of American English to British English, you wouldn't really think of that typically. In people's minds, they don't think of that as translation. Uh, because, you know, it's the same language. But in reality, British English is considered a subright. And when this, this has been my experience, when you have an Americanized book that is sold to a British publisher, it goes through the same process that other translations would go through. You're, you, you have a new editor, they're, they're looking at it taking a fresh look at it. And so changes get made to spelling and also to terms. And for the most part, the author really isn't involved in that. It's it's treated the same way like every other translation is where, you know, the publisher buys it and then they handle everything and goes on behind your back. But this there's this one experience and I it wasn't me personally. I really hope I'm getting the details right. But one of my friends, they had a book that sold in England, and it was like maybe a number one bestseller, like in that level, like just massive, massive hit in England in a way that it didn't sell that way here in the States. It was like, eh, here in the States. But in England, it was just like super huge, just everywhere. And because of how big it was there, uh, the, the British editor did more than just, hey, let's change the spelling. They actually worked with the author to sort of rewrite the book, not in a way that like completely changed it, but enough that the British edition and the American edition aren't exactly the same book. Again, I really hope that I'm not getting my details wrong. That was how I understood it as it was presented to me by my friend. So I didn't even know that that was a thing. Like I have been in contact with a number of my editors from foreign publishers 
who would get with me with questions or whatever, but never have I been in a situation where they're like, hey, if we were to change this small little thing here, rewrite this scene over here, it would really go over much better with our audience. Are you, you know, are you up for that? Never had that happen. But apparently it is something that can happen. And I just thought that was, that's what jogged my memory, you know, the the English to British thing of, of that. And it's another little detail to throw in. Um, on the subject of translations. Yeah, I did not know. I had never heard of that before, the idea of selling like British English language rights. That's uh, completely foreign to me. That's interesting. Yeah, and they're calculated differently than most other world rights. Um, I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but I think most in in the average contracts, you'd see a 75-25 percent split 75 percent to the author 25 percent to the public publisher for other foreign rights but with the uh, british rights i think it goes 80 20 hmm. um and i don't know why i it, it's probably got some historical thing to it that this is how it's done and whatever i i don't i never looked into it so yeah but we do actually have a main topic today um it is a listener question and i'm just gonna throw that right over to steve because he's got the details well, because I am a listener, and I probably <laughs> listen more than most people because I listen when we're recording these, and then I listen when I'm editing them. And so I'm like a double listener, so I get I get to ask more questions. But I was, as a listener of lots of things, I was listening to a dramatized audio book from a series written by Michael Anderley, uh, it's a, a science fiction series called The Criterion Gambit. I was listening to these and I noted something, and it's something that we talked about before. And I had recently read a series, the El Dante series, which is a sort of a sort of a sci-fi series from an uh, an author called Lawrence Donners, and they both use this technique of using point of view characters for just a scene to make a point about what was going on. And it it reminded me a little bit of the idea of like taking a movie camera and just moving it a little bit to get a a completely different idea about the characters. And it allowed the authors to say things about the characters that the characters couldn't say about themselves or people who were close to them couldn't say about them. And I found that fascinating. And I, I remember Another podcast that that Taylor and I had recorded at one time, probably a few years ago, where we're talking about point-of-view characters and the importance of limiting point-of-view characters to the ones that, you know, played pivotal roles in the books. And this was something that's completely different than that. So I wanted to ask Taylor what she thought about that idea. So that's the question. It's a really (laughs) long-winded question. (laughs) I'm being set up. Um... (laughs) It is, it, it's it's technique. Um, it's not not unusual. I mean, it is a little bit unusual because there's a certain risk that comes with it. One of my favorite authors is Christopher Moore, and he actually does that too. He he will have a scene start out from a character you don't even really fully know who it is. And then as this, the scene progresses, it becomes clear who he is. And then by the time the scene ends, 
that person's dead or something, you know, like you're never going to hear from them again. But it was in that instance, the only way to show what was happening. You couldn't do really do it any other way, or at least not as well or as funny. And so, but he does that often throughout, throughout the books where characters, and I use that in heavy finger quotes, because sometimes the character is a dog or you know something else. Um, will show up and tell the story from that point of view, and then you never hear from them again. And it works because of the type of storytelling that's being done. Um, it's a quasi-omniscient sort of telling of the story from a, a little bit of a drawn-back perspective that will occasionally getting close and get you inside the character's head, a specific character's head, and then pull back out again and just snapshot something from another character's point of view. Now, the problem you run into when you're snapshotting from a point of view that is probably not going to show up again is that every time you introduce a character, it takes words. Even if you're not planning to give their whole backstory, you've got to give something that allows that character to feel like a person. So even if it's just, you know, two or three paragraphs that's situating who whose head we're in or whatever, it's still words. And so the more often you do that, the the more words are going to be required. Now, if you're writing a very complex story with lots of intertwining moving parts, the more words you have to throw at it, the more it has a tendency to just balloon and go every which direction and spin out of control. So you you try and narrow that focus because of the complexity. You're trying to direct the attention, right? So limiting points of view to those who really matter is going to simplify your job. If you're going to switch perspectives like that and have a short chapter with the point of view from a one-time character, you can't just do it once because then it's like, what? It doesn't make any sense. So you're looking at at least two or three instances where you're switching to a random character and telling a scene from their perspective. If you have a single point of view story with just one diversion, it's going to throw your reader completely. If you have a multi-point of view story with just one diversion into a, a point of view character that you know shows up on a page and then disappears, maybe not as dire because you're already telling the story from multiple points of view. So that one anomaly doesn't jump out as being really freakishly weird. Um, there are certain storytelling styles where being able to jump from one point of view to another really, really works. And there are some that it doesn't. And so it's one of those things where you as the author, you have your voice. You know what you're comfortable doing. There are no rules saying you have to do it this way or you can't do it that way. But when you're talking about point of view, what you really want to avoid is whiplash where you don't know 
the reader doesn't know whose head they're in and it goes back and forth. And I'm reading one right now from Christopher Moore that Steve, I think you've read his book Moore. Yes. And he does, I'm only, you know, maybe a 10th of the way into it at this point. I'm still very early on in the book, but one thing I noticed that he's done already is he's, he's switched tenses. Some of the book is told in first person point of view, like, I this, I that. And then the same character in other chapters is told third person point of view. I love Christopher Moore. I will read anything that he writes. But to me as a reader, that switch from first person to third person is very unsettling. It takes me a while to adjust to the change in voice, to the change in character. And it almost sometimes makes me question whose head I'm in, because now the character that has been telling us everything from his perspective is being spoken of as by name, right? So it's like, wait, is someone, it's, it's, it's a little confusing. And so, I mean, this has got to be his, I don't know how many a book that he wrote at, by that point. He is a seasoned writer. He's very clever. He knows what he's doing. And by I trust that by the time I get to the end of this book, it's going to make perfect sense why he's made those switches. But in the hands of somebody who doesn't have a lot of experience in writing, it can be really challenging to maintain your voice, to maintain the pacing, to keep the story intact when you're switching around a lot like that. And it's very challenging to avoid whiplash. So when I talk about the importance of, you know, limiting your point of view characters and trying to keep that maintained, it's not because it's the way to do it. It's to save yourself a lot of grief. But if your voice is telling you, no, that's not how I want to do it. I want to do it my way. Then do it your way because you you understand your voice and God forbid that everybody should start writing in my voice, you know, it would be a very, very boring world. So that's kind of where I'm coming from with that. All right. Well, it's a good answer. And I did not, I did not know that Christopher Moore had also done that. And I, you know, I didn't even recognize that he was changing tense or changing um, point of view in noir. I didn't, I just was reading and enjoying the story. Yeah, I you know, it could be that I'm just more sensitive to these types of things just from, you know, it's it's what I do for a living. Mm-hmm. And so I I pick up on it perhaps in ways that other readers wouldn't. Uh his books work. Like whatever he does, it works. I couldn't write the way that he writes. I I read and then I think like, "Oh my god, I wish that I was smart enough to do this." But I also know that sometimes authors will like experiment or you know, try different things to, because they, you know, authors get bored too, and and they, you know, want to switch it up or challenge themselves. I have no idea what was going on in his mind when he did this. I just, if we're, if we're offering advice on writing, well, most of the people who are listening to this show are not multi-published authors. They're still trying to get there. So my advice to you would be, don't make it more difficult for yourself than you need. To. But if that is your is the most comfortable way to tell stories for you, then go for it. All righty. Well, that wraps it up for this week. Thank you to the people who provided feedback on the translation show to give us uh, some grist for this week's show. We appreciate that. 
And uh, if you have any questions about this week's show, please let us know. There are lots of ways you can let us know. There's email. There's the Facebook group. There's Taylor's Patreon page. Um, So let us know if you have questions or suggestions for future shows. We'd love to hear from you. As always, and thank you guys for being here, and we will see you next week.